You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Greetings, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I am your host, Doug Thorpe, and today we're going to take another step forward in the cause that I've tried to champion. As those of you who follow me know that for some time I've been speaking about the idea that I fundamentally believe we've got a gap in leadership in the in the country and in the world, and that things we can do to become better leaders can make the world a better place for everybody, whether it's at work or in your community. And today, I'm really excited about my guest. Her name is Tanya Luna. She is an organizational psychologist. She's done some phenomenal work in studying attributes of leadership that can really help crystallize some fundamentals. So um, without further ado, I want to really dive into this. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. And for those of you listening, you can't hear the sound of me nodding emphatically. <laughs> I'm very much <laughs> I'm ready to get up on that soapbox with you. It's very much my belief as well that we need more great leaders more than ever. And we really have to treat it as a, a craft and a skill set rather than cross our fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> Well, and in, in, in the spirit of further definition of that that conundrum that I'm talking about, I was actually on an interview uh, yesterday, and I was asked the question, you know, number one, why do I believe there's been a decline in, in mm-hmm. leadership effectiveness, and when did it start happening? Oh, yeah. Can you, can you give us a, well, <laughs> a and, review and of those answers? My, my Again, this is all very non-scientific, humble opinion, and very much fuel by anecdotal experience, I think the decline actually started in the 80s, I'm sad to say. I I think on the very public stage, we saw a fundamental shift in our socio-political leaders, those Mm. that get elected to public office, especially here in the U.S. The shift seemed to move away from core belief in doing what's right and there was a lot more focus on doing what was politically correct or politically Mm -hmm. necessary Mm -hmm. and i think that shifted the whole impact of leadership and as to the business world i think what happened was this incredible acceleration of the speed of business and the complexity of business And what I do believe is people in positions of authority, and I I want you to track my words very carefully, Uh it's different to be in a position of authority and be a leader. Radical Uh difference. So my point is people in positions of authority got so consumed by the velocity and complexity of their work that they abandoned the abandoned the learning of leadership and oh. the exercise of leadership. That's interesting. I can can I share kind of please potentially a counter perspective. I, and I don't know if I disagree because I, it might be that leadership has been declining in quality throughout my career. I haven't quite seen leaders get worse. What I have seen is leaders become more overwhelmed to your point about increasing velocity and complexity, which also goes hand in hand with the fact that there is more distribution 
of the requirement to lead across more people. So some of our first clients at Life Labs Learning and my leadership development company were, for example, Warby Parker, Squarespace, Etsy, when they were like 100 people. And we got really lucky because we got to be in the front row seat, so to speak, as they grew very, very quickly, double, tripled, quadrupled in size. And what we saw happening in organizations like that is, you know, not with them specifically, but in general, when companies grow fast, people are just kind of chucked into a leadership role. So much so that, you know, at Life Labs Learning, we teach leadership skills, but I can't tell you how many times we get into a workshop and the conversation that ends up happening is, well, what is a leader? What is a manager? What's my job description? No one ever gave me a job description. So I think it's that there are more leaders, both formal and informal than ever before. They're being placed into those roles faster than ever. And they're amount of sort of complexity and challenge and even responsibility. You know, leaders these days, they're expected to be responsible for people's emotions, not just their outcomes. Um, So maybe I'm talking myself into agreeing with you, actually, but (laughs) I guess I can't speak to whether leaders are getting worse. I just think that there are way more people in those seats with a lot more pressure on them. I I agree with you what you said, and I I don't take that as a counter position at all. I think it's very consistent with with the details of of what I'm speaking to, uh, the the conclusion I've drawn. And let let me share two thoughts on that. One is, and again, people that are regular followers of this show have heard heard me say this before. When I first decided to turn my professional attention to coaching and leadership development, I met with a friend of mine who is a very accomplished CEO. He's now retired, but he was heavily involved most of his career in the private equity and venture capital realm and was the guy that always got hired to go in and become the new CEO of an acquisition, Mm. do a turnaround and do a maximize so they could sell it for a profit. You know, that's a BC game, right? No pressure. But this guy was really good at it. And he was an incredible, he happened to be Dutch by heritage Mm. and he was an incredible learner. And he made it part of his game to study leadership. And and if you wanted to have a discussion about leadership principles and theory and all that, phenomenal guy to know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was presenting to him my idea what I wanted to do with leadership coaching. He shook his head and he said, you can't sell leadership. I said, what? Mm-hmm. And he said, Uh, my humble advice to you is, he said, number one, I believe in what you say you want to do. He said, don't get me wrong. It's, It's huge and it's very necessary. But right now in our business world, and by the way, this was about eight years ago, <clears throat> he said, right now in our business world, you're not going to be able to sell leadership. If you go knocking on doors saying, I'm a leadership coach, <laughs> they're going to glaze over and shut the door in your face. I said, really? So how do you recommend I get in? And he said, you're going to have to talk about something else. You're going to have to help them with other business-related conundrum. I said, you're telling me I need to still act as a consultant. He said, (laughs) well, yes and no. Uh, He said, all I'm telling you is you're not going to be able to sell leadership. Well, the good news is in in just that short eight-year period, I think the pendulum has swung on that. There's yeah. definitely a market-wide and worldwide appetite for leadership development mm-hmm. resources. Companies are turning their attention to saying, 
oh crap, we don't have enough leaders in our shop. And mm -hmm. that brings me to my second point, and I agree with what you said. The, the tradition we have in modern business is as we grow as a company, we feel the need to hire a, or identify a new frontline supervisor. So what do we do? We go look at the team. We pick the best producer, the best oh, performer, yeah. and we go, poof, you're a manager. Right. Ouch. It's like, I, I, I think about it as like, uh, it's trying to pick the best surgeon and using that as a prediction of whether they'll be the best basketball player. It's like there's almost no overlap whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then what happens, that person who gets into that role, they they may in fact survive and do well because they, on their own volition, they figure some things out. Um, or sadly, they don't. And, and what the company ends up doing is ruining a good producer. Right. But if they survive, what happens? They get promoted and they get promoted yeah. again and yeah. again. And now all of a sudden they're at a so-called director or even VP level and they've still yet not had leadership training. Right. Well, and, and I think it's it's part of the problem is the lack of training. The other problem you're pointing out is the lack of sort of assessing whether someone has the necessary skill set and aptitude. And then the third is just not even the even the organization itself not knowing what expectations they have for someone in that role. Right. Which is why you have this sort of kind of messy soup of uh, disappointment and frustration because the leader's underperforming, but there's no one within the organization that can say, hey, look, actually what success looks like is this. And here is where you are. And there's the gap. And here are the skills you need to be able to close that right. gap. They're just like, I don't know. It's not working. People are quitting. We're losing money. And there's a, this very um, perpetual notion within leadership, you know, to to your friend's point about leadership being hard to sell, although agreed, it is, it is absolutely getting easier. But there's this sense that we're just, you're going to figure it out on the job. If you're a smart person, if you're a competent person, you're going to get in there and you're going to figure it out. Again, you know, if we use the surgeon metaphor, would we do that with a surgeon? You know what? You're a smart person. You get in there into the operating room, you'll eventually figure it out. So we somehow think of this kind of this belief system, we, we hold this belief system that leadership is something so intuitive that you can just get in there and you can learn from experience. And there are one of two things that happen. Either you don't learn from experience at all and you make, you know, kind of horrible mistakes along the way and you can't quite learn from it because something I did today results in someone quitting six months from now. So I can't even have the feedback loop of telling me, oh, don't say it that way, say it this way, or you know, create clarity in this way. So either you struggle, 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 and you have these these horrible things happening, or you're you are getting better, but again, you don't really understand why, and you can't really put specific words to it so that you can systematize it and turn it into into kind of like right. a discipline. So the the learn from experience path is, uh, I think, a, a very risky one, a slow one, and a dangerous one for everyone involved. And it's usually the rare situation where there is someone up the chain who is willing to be a leadership mentor mm -hmm. and and shape and guide the up and coming. And I know companies have created these, and, and I'm speaking of larger companies now, uh, they've created these high potential programs where they do look at those yeah. 
first time, second time managers and say, okay, you seem to be getting this well. Mm. We're going to declare you a high potential leadership mm. uh, prospect. And, um, you know, that's where um, maybe you know, they'll get more support. Yeah. They're, they're going to get more support. There's maybe formalized mentoring, there's workshops, there's coaching, there's things. Yeah. I tell a story. Once upon a time, um, one of the large global construction companies asked me to come in and do a workshop for first-time managers. Mm -hmm. So this was a um, predominantly engineering-based company. So people that were being elevated into first-time managers were all engineers, civil, mm -hmm. oh, chemical, that's mechanical. Like percent of our clients, yeah. <clears throat> and um, so I'm in this conference center and I got about 60 people in the audience and we got through, a, we had a big, big old three inch binder that we were going to do in two days and introduce them to the notion of what does it mean to be a manager. And we got through about the first two hours, took a break and there's this line at the podium <laughs> and uh, this first person comes up and <laughs> very, very first person in line says, if what you said in the first two hours is what we're going to do the rest of the two days, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a first time manager. Yeah. And I'm ready to go talk to HR. And I said, okay, well, you're going to step <laughs> over here. Uh, you stay me, in this part of the line. and Let, everyone me, let me answer around. these other questions and I'll get back to you. Yeah. And the very next person said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm what he said, you know. <laughs> and everybody in line was doing that. And, yeah. But and it's so, it's, uh, there's this kind of bait and switch. <laughs> That happens so often within organizations of, you know, not actually knowing what you're signing up for until you get there or feeling like you have to go down that path. Otherwise, you're not learning and you're not growing and you're either your ego is tied up in it or it's the only way that you can increase your salary within an organization, which I think is a whole other problem. Ideally, within organizations, there's an opportunity to increase the complexity and and pay of your role without having to be in a people leadership yeah. function. Well, enough of my stories. I want to get into your work because <laughs> that's what really attracted me to doing this show. So uh, give us kind of the, well, first give us a little bit of the background story of your journey and how you got into what you're doing. Oh gosh, uh, it's a, a winding crooked path, but the, <laughs> the the bit that looks most linear is I studied psychology and actually I wasn't looking at organizational psychology. I was looking at what's called positive psychology. So I looked at like, group creativity and cohesion. I was looking at uh, emotion regulation, like how do we have kind of more um, better relationships with our own emotions, things like that. And uh, kind of really tumbled into studying leaders because it was something that there was a lot of this kind of like mystique and mystery and confusion around. And the scientist part of my brain was like, we got to be able to simplify this. It can't be that it's charisma and inspiration and these kind of big, um, hard to touch concepts. It needs to be something specific and behavioral enough that you could study it, you know, and then if you can study it, then you can pass it on. And I uh, started collaborating with co-founder at Life Labs Learning, Leanne Renninger. Her background is in experimental psychology. So both of us really kind of fell into organizational psychology with a lot of naivete. And I think that was kind of a good thing because we didn't come in with preconceived notions. We just went in going, we don't know what a great leader looks like. We don't know what a great manager looks like. So let's actually observe and look at what are the behaviors that are distinctive between 
managers who receive the best ratings from their team and have a track record of accomplishing results versus looking at average. And what we found again and again through those behavioral observations is there were a few specific things that stood out. What's interesting is that we started out by just interviewing people and that did not work. It turns out that most people have no idea what makes them effective. Uh, For example, one of the things that we saw across the board is everyone said that listening skills is core to what makes them effective, but there was no correlation between how good someone thought they were at listening and how good other people thought they were at listening. So everyone rated themselves as, you know, within the the top percentile of effective listeners and then their team did not agree. Uh, so we, we realized we can't just ask people, what is it that you're doing? We started observing. Mm-hmm. How are they having one-on-one meetings? How are they having difficult conversations? How are they leading team meetings? Things like that. Uh, and I can speak to some of the things that we found, but I'll pause there because it looks like you have a thought. No, I, I think that's fascinating. And, and my only uh, comment on the, the listening thing, I, it, it is interesting you say that, that though the leader thought they were good with listening skills, that there wasn't a correlation with what the team thought. So that's, um, I, 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 in a word, I'm going to say that's insightful and, and probably not different from what I've I've heard in my um. own It it kind of connects to what you were talking about with the difficulty of selling leadership. We had no difficulty selling manager training. Mm -hmm. I think that's because, well, it's hard to say why, but my hypothesis is one of the reasons is that the people who are paying for the manager training are not the managers themselves. It's really easy to be in a leadership role and go, you know, in a senior leadership role and say, our managers aren't good enough. It's much harder to be in that executive leadership role yourself and say, I'm not good enough. And so I think that's one of the reasons. There are many others, but but I think that that's an important driving one. Um, and so one of the things that is, you know, kind of related to the listening um, finding that we had is that we also had to be really thoughtful about what are the topics that we offer on our course menu in, our, in the programs that we teach, because people have to look at it and go, yeah, I have that problem. For example, we offer feedback skills training and people go, yes, I need that and I want that and I'm not good at it. When we offered listening skills, almost no one booked it because they were like, no, I'm already good at that. Uh, So yeah, it it is this interesting, you know, kind of distance between reality and perception and in similar fashion to how you had to find that kind of way to sneak into leadership development. Sometimes we have to sneak in the skills that we know have the biggest impact in the shortest time, even if we kind of tuck them into uh, something else. I, I used to volunteer through this organization called Citizen Schools. It was this after-school program, and they said their their metaphor was hide the spinach in the brownie. <laughs> so give someone this delicious brownie that they want, And all the actual nutrients is hidden inside. So every once in a while, we have to do that because, of course, there's an ego component involved here, right? It's it's scary and unpleasant and uncomfortable to think of yourself as lacking in leadership because it's imbued with this kind of moral um, element to it. Like, if I'm not a good leader, am I not a a good person? Am I not a powerful person? So anyway, I digress. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, a lot of it, a lot of our findings had to do with what can we see with our own eyes and using inter-rater reliability, not just what do I think, but what do, what does a group of us notice when they're, when we're observing these behaviors to try to extract out the distinctive actions. 
I think that's powerful. And I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I look distracted. I'm making a note. I love that phrase, hide the spinach in the brownie. Um, <laughs> that is such a great metaphor for, for this thing. And, and I do think uh, your point is very valid. People don't have trouble thinking about management training mm-hmm. and, and bringing that in and, and helping the leaders. Um, the, the same engineering company I referred to earlier in my story, uh, a friend of mine uh, was one of their senior HR people, and that's how I got the gig, actually. And uh, one of his things was, he actually went on an internal campaign to convince the company that they needed to redefine the purpose of HR. And his mantra was, if we fix our managers, we won't have people problems. Mm. That was his mantra in a nutshell. Well, Oh, sorry. Well, and uh, he he made a little bit of inroad. They they won a giant contract, and he was named the number two HR person on that contract. Mm-hmm. And there was a population of fifty thousand employees that were going to be subject to this contract. And the company told him, they said, "All right, we're game. We're going to let you test this over there. Do that mm-hmm. and see how it works." Well. It actually worked very well. <laughs> yeah. And this was a, a large multinational platform. And so it had all the complexities of, of what you might expect in something like that. But they spent a lot of time on the management slash leader development. It's a great strategy. We what we when we first started Life Labs Learning, we assumed, like many others do, that <clears throat> comes sort of top down. And that we had to start with executives. Uh, and then that didn't really work because they they were too busy and they perhaps weren't self-aware enough to recognize the need to you know develop the skill set. So then we we're like, okay, maybe we should go for the largest segment of the population. Let's go for individual contributors. A lot of excitement there, a lot of interest, but again, not the biggest impact. Turns out managers that are sort of that middle layer of most organizations biggest change in the shortest period of time. And what we found is that they actually exerted that sort of positive pressure across the organization. If they were skilled in, for example, asking high quality questions or giving really clear feedback um, or setting expectations with you know alignment across individuals, then we noticed that the executives started doing more of that. And then individual contributors and cross-function, even we have the best impact when all managers across the company are trained, but even if you have a subset of managers trained, especially if you sprinkle them across the organization, you see that spillover effect of those skills. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. And and to the point that you made earlier about, you know, (laughs) your pursuit of leadership and accessibility of leadership around the world. We also saw in our in our research, and we regularly see at this point, we've trained over 400,000 people across 2,000 companies. We regularly see that tip over effect into personal life and not just the workplace. I can't tell you how many times we've had individuals after workshops, you know, when we see that line after the workshop, whether it's a live or virtual one, people will say things like, 
hey, I use this model that you gave me for you know, addressing conflict. I use this with my roommate. And finally, we're able to coexist for the first time. Or we had this one guy, we had this workshop called Effective One-on-Ones. And it's essentially how to transform your conversations that are one-on-one with your direct reports into uh, these kind of like engagement amplifiers. So we're not just doing status reports. I'm helping you walk away feeling more clarity, more autonomy, more motivation, things like that. It's very focused on the workplace. There's this one guy after the workshop, he said, I printed out this template and I use it every month with my wife. And we have a one-on-one for us as a couple. And we talk about how are we doing? What feedback do we have for each other? You know, and, and usually it's not quite so tool-based. Usually you just see it in the form of less toxic stress, more uh, curiosity, more ease of collaboration and communication. But sometimes people literally will print out the worksheet, put it on their refrigerator and they apply it to, you know, how they interact with the people in their personal lives, which I find incredibly important. We think of the workplace as this like microcosm. If you're, if you're miserable at work, you come home and everything's fine. No, you're still the same person. And that, that stress, that, you know, that sense of injustice, all of the things that can happen when leaders aren't effective at their jobs, it spills over. It's like this toxic waste (laughs) that spills into the water that we're all drinking. And then the flip side is true, of course, as well. You know, you have people who are leading through clarity and compassion and amplifying your effectiveness. And then we become the kinds of people that bring that into our communities, into our right. homes, into our right. Oh, I agree with you totally. And I'm grinning. I, I've had a number of instances and I count these as one of my own personal victories for my coaching work is, is when I have a client come into a session and I can always tell when this is getting ready to happen, they come because they have this really sheepish look. <laughs> And and they'll, and they'll say, you know what we talked about last time, I think you probably picked up on the fact I didn't necessarily agree with you, and, but I went home and I talked to my spouse about it during dinner, <laughs> and I was told, absolutely, your coach is right. Listen <laughs> to what he's saying. <laughs> yes, it's so true. I mean, it, yeah, it, it goes... It, it's not like, you know, you go into the workplace and I I just started watching that show severance, you know, when you, when they slice essentially themselves in two and there's your work self and there's your, your personal life self, it doesn't even spoiler alert. It doesn't even work in the show (laughs) in this fictional reality. Of course, it's not going to work in our reality. No, it really doesn't. Yeah. And you know, to that point, uh, I've actually changed my own vocabulary. People for many years talked about the the search for work-life balance mm. and i've abolished that phrase from my vocabulary now or at least try to i i suggest people consider something more in terms of a blend or a harmony mm. that is exactly the word that i use <clears throat> i'm with it like let's just move our soapboxes side by side and we yeah, can, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll be so much together. more efficient yeah exactly Yes. Can you, I mean, I, I think I know exactly, you know, where you're coming from, but can you speak more to that? Because I think it's a little taboo to not believe in the concept. The ultimate conundrum with the whole work-life balance. And even when I became an advocate of it to, to help leaders account for that in the, in their frame of reference, there was always the sense, well, balance means give and take, you know, you, you Mm. raise something up, you got to take something down and, and you, literal, you know, balance on a fulcrum is, is that give and take. And that's not reality from a personal standpoint, us as individual human beings, we are one person. 
And it's almost our, like even seeing your visual, it's like treating work and life as though they're independent versus interdependent. Exactly. And and the fact that we show up either at home or at work, it's it's a question of focus, not uh adjustment. Mm-hmm. And and um you know, arguably, when you show up at work, you need to have a level of focus on what the work's about. When you're at home, hopefully, you're focused on matters of the home and you're not distracted by thinking about work. And that's where that conundrum comes in. The interesting thing and in, in the whole COVID pandemic lockdown really accelerated the emphasis on this. Right. People were forced with establishing that harmony, and yet they were cohabiting the same space. Right. Husbands and wives and kids and everything was going on at the same time. So there was no give and take Mm -hmm. per se. Um, You had to figure out a harmony and a balance there. And I think it's, it's constant in the sense that balance implies if I put a little bit on this side of the scale and a little bit on that side of the scale and I can get it just right. And the reality is, and, and one of the reasons I also lean on you know, the concept of harmony is that it is a process, a continuous process where you have to keep um, tending to it almost like a, a practice. Uh, there's a, a a business scholar who wrote in the 1920s named Mary Parker Fullett, who I, we can have a conversation just about the things she had already figured out in the 1920s that we're just starting to catch up on today. And one of the things that she talked about is this idea of integration or unifying being a continuous process. There's no such, there's no such thing as I've got the balance, right. I've figured it out. Or we work together well as a team. Now we're done. Or my leadership is already effective and I'm done as all of the things around us change. And these days they, they're changing so <laughs> much that, you know, how do you even prepare for the next day? It's the verb of constantly getting to a place of harmony versus the noun of I've got balance done. And I think that's something that's so important to keep in mind because otherwise we feel like we're failing constantly at balance because it seems like it's a thing that you finish and walk away from. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Tanya, you know, I I could do this all day long and uh, thoroughly enjoy it. But uh, for the for the sake of what we're trying to do in this show here, I, I would like to get to those core elements that your work has identified. And hopefully that'll be some solid takeaways people can get from our discussion here. So run, run us through those key elements that you okay. uncovered in your research. Sounds good. So the one of the things that we were most excited about is the recognition of eight, we call them core skills that came up again and again when we study what ma- great managers were doing differently. Uh, and this is across multiple countries, across multiple company sizes. So I'll quickly go through those eight. And then what I'll show you is how we then take them and break them down into what we call behavioral units, because it's one thing to try to tackle a skill, but a skill is like driving a car. You can't just put someone in a car and go drive. You really have to go, okay, here's the first step. You look in the rear view mirror. I don't know. I actually, I think I might've confessed this to you before I do not drive. So (laughs) <laughs> I should have used a different analogy, but you. my understanding is, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, um, you, my understanding is that you break it down into small steps, and that's what we've done with the leadership skills. So the, <clears throat> the eight core skills, number we'll, one. We'll give you that. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
<laughs> so number one is uh, coaching skills. And this, honestly, if nothing else, this is the number one tipping point skill. So coaching skills is essentially helping someone clarify their own thinking and come to their own conclusions versus telling them what to do. So at the heart of it is asking the kinds of questions that will allow someone to take the kind of mess of knowledge that they already have in their mind and be able to extract insight from it. So coaching skills, number one. Number two we found was feedback skills. So being able to learn quickly, to calibrate, to reset expectations through both giving and receiving feedback. Uh, number three was productivity and prioritization, but truly out of those prioritization, increasingly we're seeing come to the surface. So that's when time is scarce, when resources are limited, what is truly the most important thing for you to do? Do you know that as a manager and can you help your team both know what it is and stick to what it is? So coaching, feedback, prioritization. The fourth one is leading effective one-on-ones. We were surprised by that one, uh, but again and again, what our research found is that managers who were highly effective had this practice of consistently meeting, um, sometimes weekly, sometimes every other week. There's some research that shows that if you meet once a month consistently, it actually has less benefit than not than just meeting spontaneously, because then people sort of save up their conversations too much. But those consistent one-on-ones are touch points to say, how are things going? Not just what's the status of your work, but how are you feeling? What, what do you need? Are you learning? Are you growing? Do you feel engaged? Um, so those are the, the first kind of four core. If you're going to do nothing else, those four are essential. As the complexity of a manager's role or scope of responsibility grows, the next four that we see are uh, strategic thinking. So not just knowing what's most important, but being able to anticipate risk, being able to diagnose a complex situation, essentially being able to anticipate and plan for the future, even in the midst of constant change. So strategic thinking, meeting facilitation is an interesting one. Increasingly, we're seeing the need to both um, lead meetings within your team and cross-functionally. And we thought it was like this kind of tactical thing, but actually at the heart of it is, can you gather and integrate diverse perspectives? Can you make sure that everyone is heard and feels heard? Uh, can you drive action through collaboration? And so much of that comes out of meeting skills. Leading change, that kind of speaks for itself, but when there's change all around, how do you both get people comfortable with that, but also how do you mobilize a group to be able to shift how they're doing things in a really you know consistent and effective way? And then the last one is systematically developing people. So of course, coaching conversations, feedback conversations, they do sort of um, consistent lightweight development. But what we've noticed is that really effective managers are also thinking ahead and going, what skills are missing on my team? Um, what's my succession plan? How do I make sure that people are both learning in ways that are engaging to them and filling the skill gaps that we have today and that I anticipate having in the future? So those are the eight. Uh, and there's so many other skills out there, of course, but truly when resources are limited, when time is limited, what we've seen is that people get good at these tipping point skills. And it's like, it, it, it tips over into so many other challenges and situations. If I'm really good at feedback skills, I don't need to take a conflict resolution or a negotiation workshop. I mean, I can, it's great to keep learning, but my feedback skills are solid. It's going to tip over into handling conflict, difficult conversations, negotiation, even things like delegation stems from being able to uh, develop and, and hone those feedback skills.
I love it. I love it. So uh, do me a favor and repeat those first four that you counted as a primary core. Yeah. First four primary colors, coaching, feedback, prioritization, and leading effective one-on-ones. You know, as you were saying those, one of the things that I thought about, especially on the prioritization one, and, and this is one that I see small business owners suffer quite a bit Mm. is the ability to prioritize because everything feels urgent. Everything feels important. They have their hands in everything and they're trying to, one of their biggest struggles is elevating above the the fray. And as the popular phrase goes, learn how to work on the business, not in the business. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that art of prioritization is a big one, but from a, from an execution standpoint to know and understand the concept of prioritization is one thing, but to do it is something totally different. Absolutely. And I've actually got some folks I've been working with that I've encouraged them to try an exercise. And that is to the extent they've already identified their five or six biggest priorities for the near term. Mm-hmm. I posed the question to him, how are you going to work on it? What are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And okay, you did great work identifying them. I agree with you. You know, they all fit. They make sense. But how are you going to do it? And it came down to their ability to get the junk out of their head and the um, noise out of their head and find time in every day to chip away at the big things, the big rocks. And the the bigger feels, the more overwhelming it is, the more this is where the psychology is really useful. So often we end up not doing the big important things because it ends up getting our our cortisol levels or stress levels up. When our stress levels go up, we have a negative association with that big thing. And then intentionally or usually unintentionally, we procrastinate. And procrastination is often a sign that you haven't broken it down into small enough components to not have that overwhelm. So you can really kind of befriend that procrastination because it could be this wonderful alert for your brain telling you, ah, okay, it means I'm looking at it as too large a chunk. What is a small, tiny chunk that I could break it into so that I can actually make progress? Because there's an emotional, psychological component to it. It's like, we know we should be doing it, but we don't. Yeah, I agree with you. I think prioritization, you know, it used to be, I, I would say, if we were talking even two years ago, I would say, Coaching and feedback, most, most, most important. And and still, I, I do believe that. But in terms of where there is most pain and struggle right now, I think it's within the realm of prioritization. Things are just moving so fast. There's so much fear. There's so much urgency. Even if you look at what happens in our brains when stress levels go up, our peripheral vision narrows, physically narrows. And so we just, just do the thing that's right in front of us. Yeah. Or we do the thing that is... <clears throat> you know, my quick win, or I do the thing that some, I'm so tired that I'm just going to do the thing that someone just asked me for. And that is really quite dangerous because then you are just wasting the resources that you have. Right. Um, so I think that's such an important one for leaders today. Well, it, it is compounded by, again, what we started with talking about the complexity and velocity of work. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've gone into a, a middle manager's office and he's he or she is shaking their head, going, I just got out of another meeting with my boss. And I said, okay, what happened? And they'll say, well, the things I thought were my last 10 priorities now have all been jumbled again. And I've been given three more. And now they've been all bumped up. And the whole, and it's just this ongoing sense of frustration that I can't make progress toward accomplishing something because the goalposts yeah. keep moving. 
Can I, can I share a few quick tools <clears throat> yeah. kind of those behavioral units? So a- absolutely. I think that what you're bringing up is spot on as, as the challenges. Um, so a few just really simple, quick tools that we've seen kind of have small change, big impact. One is this model called MIT's most important thing. Sounds silly simple, but what we find is that if you just get in the habit of saying, hold on, let me pause. What are my most important things? What are my most MIT's for whatever it is this week? for this month, for this quarter, just even having that vocabulary. Like with my own team, we'll often start our meetings with, are we still aligned on MITs or what's your MITs this week? Or if someone says, hey, you're, you're working on these three things, I have this fourth thing, you can pause and go, of these four, what is the actual MIT? Um, one of the things that is incredibly useful when it comes to stack ranking, uh, sorry, when it comes to prioritization is stack ranking. Uh, so most people go, how important is this? You know, is this, how urgent is this? And then it's all urgent and it's all important. The real art of prioritization is you put those three or four things on a list and then you rate, rank them, not rate them, but rank them in order of priority. And that is also a really important discipline. If someone comes to you and says, hey, do this thing, you can go, absolutely. I want to, you know, make sure that we're doing the most important things. Here's my list of three. Where would you put this list? Would you put this on top of the others? Would you put it on the bottom of the others? Mm-hmm. And it just, it's a, it's a way to really co-create a reality around the fact that we can't do all the things and then create this sort of forced alignment around which of these things are we actually treating as most important. So just that like stack ranking and MITs. Uh, I like that. And you know, that sounds very similar to a methodology that I coach and a, a colleague of mine uh, actually introduced me to this many years ago. He actually worked for me in my banking days mm-hmm. and then we've stayed friends and colleagues ever since. Um, it's something called the big five and, uh-huh. and it ties into your, your notion of feedback for your employees. And what, what the big five methodology says is a manager does it for himself, but he also in, asks his team that at the first of the month, the first five days of the month, uh-huh. give me a list of your perception of your five priorities for the new month. Uh-huh. But I also want you to identify in a second list, what you believe your five accomplishments were last month. Mm, oh, that's great. And then you have that feedback meeting and and you look at this list and that's a, a chance for the manager to look at the priority list and say, love it, love it. No, number three here. Tell you what, let's table that. Mm-hmm. I want you to bump that down in the ranking and I want you to do this other thing instead. Yes. And employee can go, okay, do I have questions or not? Give me clarity, da, da, da. And you have that discussion. And then they can go off and they have their agenda for the month. That's great. I love that. And and having it written down sounds so simple, but it makes a huge difference because then you can keep coming back to it and you go, is this still it? Has anything changed? It's okay if it's changed, but but let's talk about it. I even have seen people have a not priority list which I think is incredibly useful. So you actually have a list that says, I will not do these things unless the, you know, the other five are done. These are, we're deliberately agreeing, not a priority. And, oh, and you know, the side comes from the word for to cut off, right? The Latin for cut off. And it's so much of being able to handle the pace of today is to be really good at cutting <laughs> and to be able to say, yes, I'm doing this. No, I'm not doing this. And, and, you know, the, the, what the research shows is that organizations that have a smaller number of priorities consistently outperform in terms of revenue growth companies that have a larger number of priorities. So both on a macro level and on a micro level, 
you know, micro level, it's so sad to be incredibly productive, incredibly busy and feel like a failure every day because you still feel like you have just as much work to do today as you did yesterday. On a macro yeah. level, companies really suffer when, you know, you're, you're, uh, I learned the expression recently, uh, digging for well in a hundred, <laughs> digging for water in a hundred places versus digging one, one, you know, deep well where you can actually hit the water. Yeah, I like that. And that may be a good one to put a bow on this show. I, um, I do know our time's up, but th this has been a phenomenal set of content, Tanya, and I, I really appreciate you sitting in. Tell everybody how they can get a hold of you if they're looking for more information. Sure thing. So uh, if you want leadership training, uh, our website is called lifelabslearning.com, lifelabslearning.com. Uh, we have a book out that breaks down our research. It's called The Leader Lab, Core Skills to Become a Great Manager Faster. And if you are interested in any of the other work that I'm doing, my website is tanyaluna.com, T-A-N-I-A, just to confuse you, L-U-N-A.com, tanyaluna.com. Great. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing this. Uh, you and I, I do think we, we share a lot of common threads here, and I look forward to maybe figuring out how we can do some work together in the future. I think this is good stuff. Sounds very great. Powerful. Our soapboxes will stay together. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Thank you. So, folks, with that, we are going to uh, wrap it up here and yeah, let you have your day back. And uh, I, I do always like to remind you at this point in the show that if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, subscribe. Give us a thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever. Uh, I always tell people I'm a big boy. I can take it. If you uh, need to correct something I said, let's open the discussion. Love to hear it. But the bottom line is I hope this has been helpful for you. If you're in a position of authority and you're struggling with what it means to be a good leader, uh, take a listen again and maybe play this back another time and, and uh, reach out to Tanya or, or me and either one if if we can give you any help in your own uh, leadership development journey. So um, for now, we're going to sign off. Say goodbye and have a great day. Hope to see you again real soon. Take care. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.